At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. My favorite plant to grow in my yard is the fruit tree because you plant it once and you get fruit for decades. If you have ever been curious on the best ways to be successful in growing fruit trees, today is your lucky day. Why? Because my team and I have compiled our best interviews and videos in one place to assist you in growing your own toe-tingling peaches and awesome apples right out your front or back door. Plus, as an added bonus, we've included an in-depth guide to successfully growing fruit trees in your yard. To get access to this information, it's free by the way, just go to urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. That's urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Robbie Shell to talk about her experience with honeybees and colony collapse disorder. Robbie was a business journalist and co-author of a book on leadership. She turned her attention to honeybees when her brother, a beekeeper, brought her a few jars of honey harvested from his backyard hives. Inspired by the teamwork and efficiency displayed by these tiny pollinators, she left her job as a business editor and writer and wrote, bees on a roof. This is a middle grade environmental fiction novel that tells the story of four seventh graders competing in a science competition, but also educates young readers, and us olders too, about the importance of honeybees to our environment and the dangers they face from the still mysterious colony collapse disorder. Robbie, who graduated from Princeton University with a degree in history, grew up in Connecticut and lived in Charlottesville, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C. She and her husband now live in Philadelphia, where they raise their two sons. She can claim she has never been stung by a honeybee. How cool is that? Wasps, however, are a different story. Welcome to the show today, Robbie. Thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. I'm excited to have this conversation. Good. So, me too. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. So you mentioned that, that I got hooked on all this when my brother gave me the jar of honey. Mm-hmm. What I didn't anticipate was how incredibly amazing these honeybees are. The, the very sophisticated mm. navigation systems, their communication systems, food production systems. These are probably more efficient than any of the systems that humans have. But I have wow. to say what really hooked me on the topic was when I saw a video of honeybees marching out of a shoebox-sized package 
that had been sent through the mail to a beekeeper here in Pennsylvania. But what got me is they were marching single file, no pushing, no shoving, no one trying to get ahead of each other. They were just trying to get out of the box, set up their new home, take care of the queen. So, you know, we live in this society where there's, there, where there's so many prima donnas, whether it's in entertainment or sports or financial services. And here is this community where everyone knows what they're supposed to do. They're totally dedicated to the good of the hive. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's a matriarchal society where females rule. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, there so, you go. So I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really look into, into researching these. And then I... I guess the final nail in the coffin, in a way, was I wrote an, an essay for the Wall Street Journal on how much I loved honeybees, and I said in that essay that I might write a book about them. Oh my gosh! And then when you when you say that, you know, of course, everyone <laughs> then says, "So where's the book?" Yeah, exactly. And I finally got to it through a long route. I finally I was I started out thinking about writing an adult nonfiction book on bees, and then realized there are thousands of those. And I eventually came around to writing this fiction story for middle grade kids. Yeah. I actually really love learning via fiction mm-hmm. writing. It's it's a, a really effective way to learn, is it not? Well, it is. And in fact, the publisher of the book, it's a Boston-based publisher uh, called Tumble Home Learning. And their philosophy is that if you don't catch kids by seventh grade and hook them on the STEM, the STEM disciplines, Yep that by then you've lost them. So that's why they specialize in what's called environmental fiction. They want they want kids to be entertained in a way by a good story, but they want them to be informed and excited mm-hmm. by something, you know, that's non-fictional and that affects the, the environment that they're going to be inheriting. Yeah. So can you explain environmental fiction? Well, so it's just the combination of factual information about some aspect of the environment. In my case, it was honeybees. It can be about polluted water. Uh, It can be about toxic air. It can be about climate change. So anything that that affects all of us and and our ecology, but written about in, in, you know, sort of encased in a fictional cocoon almost, so that kids, when they're reading about it, they don't almost don't realize they're getting they're getting taught a lot because right. they're hopefully they're very interested in the story, and so my challenge, I, I knew how to research bees and I knew what was interesting and important. My challenge was trying to get into the mind of seventh graders, which oh, is right. extremely difficult. I'm not sure I ever did get into the minds of my kids when they were in middle school. It's a tough time, but getting into their minds, getting dialogue. And that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of a combination of, of two approaches to writing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about your book. It's called Bees on a Roof. Bees on the Roof. So it, it is. It's about four seventh graders who live in Manhattan. Uh, and they do, they uh, go to a, a very prestigious private school uh, that emphasizes science. And for their science project, which is very important to these kids, they choose to study honeybees and colony collapse disorder because the project is supposed to be something that's relevant. And given the fact that millions of bees are dying because of this CCD, colony collapse disorder, um, their project was approved, and they decide to, to put beehives on the roof of a hotel where one of the kids' father uh, is a pastry chef. And for various reasons that probably don't have time to go into it's extremely important that they win first place oh right so the book takes us through a, a group of bullies that tries to 
actually, you know, physically move them out of out of the competition. Uh, there's a, a romance blooming. Um, there's the danger that the boy's father, who's the pastry, pastry chef, will lose his job. There's a kind of reclusive science teacher and a mystery about her. And woven all throughout that is the kid's discovery of of honeybees and what it takes to care for them and how incredibly important they are to our environment. Mm-hmm. So it's about 200, 220 pages. It's not a hard read, yeah. but I think it's a, I think it's an intriguing one. So. Well, now, That's what it's about. Yeah, and I suspect that there's probably a good enough, inf- a good amount of information in the book that us adult readers might want to read it as well. Well, there's a lot of information about what colony collapse is and the different theories of what's causing it. You know, such as the use of too many insecticides, uh, climate change, these these horrible pests and parasites that attack uh, hives, and the fact that there are more and more acres of land being being given over to mono agriculture, which right. takes away all the wildflowers that honeybees feed on. So there are a lot of there's a lot of um, very you know not age specific, which means adult too, information on colony collapse disorder, but also on how to take care of honeybees and how amazing they are. Mm. I go into their anatomy and into the ways they they are able to tell other bees where the nectar is. All right. And, um, what the hives look like and how you get the honey, how you you know sort of rob the hives, hives of the honey when it's time to harvest it, and all that. So the kids are taken through you know ordering the hives all the way through to collecting the honey and giving it to the pastry chefs to use in his baking. How cool is that? Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I, I love. Is. Well, I love in in our culture when we can make the full circle around you know basically they've got. Hun, you know, honeybees on the roof, they're harvesting mm-hmm. it and it's being made into pastries downstairs. So, right. you know, there's that full circle of our food system represented there, which is... Exactly, right. And the and the other, the, the book also does try to make the topic extremely interesting to the kids. So at one point, one of the boys takes his three teammates to a grocery store and they go up and down the aisles and he points to everything that bees pollinate. So oh my gosh. If you consider that, if you consider that of, of 100 major crops in this country, about 70 are pollinated by honeybees. Uh-huh. That, that's a huge impact on our, on our food system. Oh my so gosh, yes. If we, and those, those, those crops include, you know, I tell in the book, not just apples and, and blueberries and peaches and avocados and, and, and um, broccoli and onions, but watermelon. You're not going to have watermelon speed seed spitting contest if we don't have watermelon. <laughs> right. We're not going to be able to carve pumpkins at Halloween if we don't have pumpkins. Almond growers are all the almond groves in California where there are 800,000 acres of these almond groves. They're all pollinated by honeybees. Yeah. And the honeybees are actually carted there from other other places Parts of in the, the country. country yeah. Because, because California doesn't have enough honeybees to pollinate all that. So right. it's just, it's a very interlocking story. So a couple of questions for you here. So this is this kind of speaks to the role that honeybees play in our daily life. Um, right. You know, they're they're pollinators of seventy percent of what we eat. Just yep, exactly. Well, another way to look at this is that one out of every three bites of food we eat relies on bees for pollination. Wow. Um, in terms of the agricultural industry, pollination adds about $15 billion to a crop's value each year. Wow. That could be lost. Yeah. 
And globally, the latest global assessment of the threats to pollinators says that plants that depend on pollination make up 35% of global crop production, not to mention all the jobs that are created by the agricultural system. Wow. So it has these little insects. I mean, they're three quarters of an inch long. <laughs> they're tiny, and they have a huge, huge impact yeah. on our environment, our ecology, our yeah. food system. Yeah. So talk about colony collapse disorder and what it is as best as you can. Okay. So colony collapse disorder, it, it refers to the, to the sudden loss of a, of a hive's worker bees. Uh, which means that the, the worker bees are the female bees that go out to forage for the nectar and pollen and bring, brings both back to the hive. Uh -huh. All of a sudden they disappear. They don't return to the hive. So the queen and the brood, another, another word for babe, the young, remain in the hive along with the honey and pollen reserves, but the hives, without the worker bees there, they can't sustain themselves, so uh -huh. they die. They collapse, and that's why it's called colony collapse disorder. So right now bees are dying at... at some of the highest rates ever recorded, 42% of U.S. bee colonies collapsed last year. Wow. The average is about 31%. And not only that, but the loss rates during the summer exceeded those of the winter, which is, re, which is the opposite of what should be because bees are thought to be healthier and more, In the robust, summer. more, more robust exactly during the summer. Right. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic number. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a lot of theories about what causes colony collapse disorder. And mm -hmm. probably the most controversial is the use of <clears throat> insecticides, uh, mainly uh, a group of them called neonicotinoids, yep. uh, which is for good reason called neonics for short. And they've been around since the 1990s, and they're, they're made by big companies like Bayer and Monsanto and Syngenta. Uh, and they're basically sprayed on corn, wheat, soy, cotton seeds, they're sprayed right into the seeds of the, of the flowers, and it's, it's thought that they then travel up through the plant into the bees, into the bees' bodies as they're, as they're gathering the nectar, right. and that in some way they affect the bees' nervous system systems and their homing instinct, so they can't find their way home. Oh. That's why the, why the, why the um, bee has collapsed. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of the organic beekeepers, a lot of commercial beekeepers, think that um, these insecticides are really, really damaging. Now, the companies that make these insecticides say, no, wait a minute, we're not the main culprits. The main culprits are the varroa mites. It's a, it's a parasite that sucks the blood out of honeybees. Another uh, parasite are the small hive beetles um, that lay hundreds of eggs that basically crowd out uh, the bee eggs. Uh -huh. Then there are viruses, there are fungi, and other stuff. So that's a big problem. And then there's climate change. I, I mentioned, yeah. um, you know, with the with changes in the landscape and in the plants that that are no longer being, you know, growing as, right. as um, fruitfully. Yeah. Bees, you know, they haven't quite adapted to this to this new environment that we have with all this climate change. So mm -hmm. that's a problem. So in other words, there's just a lot of there's just a lot of sort of contributors to this problem. Right. And it's, it's, I should say it's not just uh, bees who are pollinators. Birds are, butterflies, moths, wasps. Ants. Bats. And eat, pardon? Ants. I'm not sure that ants are pollinators. I've seen them pollinating. I heard that. Yeah. Well. Okay. Then ants. 
and then humans, we're pollinators when we brush up against flowers oh, yeah, and, yeah. and carry pollen around. So, you know, they, and just getting back to the pesticides for a minute, I mean, you know, some commercial beekeepers themselves use pesticides yeah. in, in, in their hives to control against the varroa mites. So I remember reading an article in the New York Times recently that said a typical honeybee colony contains residue from 120 pesticides. <sighs> and so no single yeah. one alone is all that bad, but together they, you know, they're this toxic soup is the right. phrase that's used. Yeah, exactly. So colony collapses, or, you know, it's not going away. Um, no one really has a solution to it. It's just, um, well, I mean, there have been some... Uh, the two European countries, I think, have banned uh, this particular class of, of insecticides, and the, the EPA, I think, has actually temporarily banned oh. uh, their use in the U.S. Interesting. So there is, you know, there is a lot of activity, and of course, a lot of groups like the Natural Resource Defense Council and uh, et cetera are lobbying very hard to get uh, these insecticides banned, at yeah. least until they know more about how just just how dangerous they are or not dangerous. I mean, yeah. you know. The verdict is probably still out, but there seems to be a lot of evidence that pesticides are not good for right. bees. Well, and I've I've found over and over again in my garden for the past forty years that when things are number one out of balance, yeah, um, you know, you get blooms of pests. Uh, you know, so if you know in the hive if things are out of balance, yeah. you know the the mites and other bugs can you know have more of a tendency to take hold. Um, yeah, sure. Yep. As long as, I mean, as soon as the hive is weakened by yep. any of these of these factors, yeah. exactly, they, the the bees fall. Either they fall to the pests, or they fall. They they get viruses, or they just basically are, are you know attacked by whatever is around them, including right. wasps. Yeah. So. Plus the you know having environmental toxins. I mean, we see this in our bodies. If you get environmental toxins in your body, you know you're less, you're more susceptible to other pests, to, you know diseases and Absolutely. so on and yeah. so on. So, yep. I, you know, I suspect that plays a role in it as well. It does. You're right. So, common misconceptions about beekeeping. Are there some? Uh, about beekeeping or about bees? So I'll start with beekeeping. Okay. That's the word you use. So, first of all, it's not, if you if you decide to, to buy uh, bees mm-hmm. and set up beehives, it's not like you're getting some goldfish. It's <laughs> right. not an easy, you know, it's not a really easy, you don't have to spend any time, effortless, a riskless proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, beekeeping is, is very, is, it takes a lot of commitment. It can take a lot of time. And I know, I don't, I'm not a beekeeper myself, but I've been involved with my brother's hives mm-hmm. on his backyard. And he has six hives and three of them this year were, were destroyed by hive beetles. So oh, wow. despite his best efforts, uh, he only has three hives this year that are, mm-hmm. that are producing honey. There are huge numbers of uh, bee associations that offer classes and clinics and uh, all kinds of uh, information sessions because it's, it's, a, it, it's just a, a complicated uh, but rewarding process to be a beekeeper. So yeah. once you decide to do it, you're commi- you have to be committed. You have to make sure that the bees have water. Uh, you have to make sure that they have enough sugar in the uh, or pollen patties. You know their protein patties in the yep. during the winter months. You have to keep them away from uh, predators like um, wasps or 
uh, bears or mm-hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you don't just set them up in your backyard and forget about them. Plus, right. if you're in a neighborhood, you have to make sure first that you're obeying any any legal rules about them. And right. And they don't go and, you know, and, and, and bother your neighbors. The, the, the biggest misconception, I think, about bees is that when you're stung, uh, people assume that it's a honeybee, and in fact, it's almost always not because honeybees are not aggressive. They will only sting you if you step on them or get in their flight path or somehow disturb them. Uh-huh. They don't sting you because they die after they sting you. Right. So I think they're, in, you know, in their heart of hearts, they don't really want to get involved with humans. Right. So if you're stung, it's probably by a yellow jacket or a hornet, which are much more aggressive. Uh, and, you know, yellow, uh, I have been stung by a yellow jacket, and that's really painful. Oh, yes, so. it is. Yeah, James is shaking his, James is sh- emphatically shaking his head over here saying, yeah. Yes, yeah. And I remember the first time I went to a um, a commercial apiary out in Lancaster County here, I showed up and the, the beekeeper said, let's go back and look at my hives. There are about 250 hives in his field. And I said, well, you know, where where's the protective outfit, you know, the veiled hat and the, the coat and everything and gloves? And he said, no, no, we don't need them. And I said, what? You know, we're going to... And he said, no, no, just, just walk slowly, you know, keep talking. We'll see where they're flying to. We won't get in their way. And so we walked out there, uh-huh. and there were literally hundreds of bees swirling around me. And I knew there were some in my hair. I knew I could see them on my sweater. Oh, my gosh. And I just... I just sat there and I said, I'm not going to panic, I'm yeah. not going to run, I'm just going to keep talking. And sure enough, they they didn't sting me. Yeah, you still haven't been stung. I haven't been stung by honeybee and I've been around them a lot. I also visited, when I wrote the Wall Street Journal story, uh-huh. uh, one of the comments came from the beekeeper at Monticello, uh, Thomas Jefferson's home in, oh, outside yes. of Charlottesville. Oh, yes. And since I go to Virginia every summer, he said, come visit me. Ooh. So I went and visited Monticello several times. Nice. And he took me around all the hives that he manages there, and he doesn't wear um, he doesn't wear the clo- the clothing. Uh, although he has, he said that there are times when he when he does something wrong, or there the bees are in this very feisty mood where he has gotten stung sometimes ten or twelve times. Oh wow. In one outing, but it doesn't really bother him that much. He also, I think, you build up his susceptibility. Yeah. But in any case, you know, beekeepers know how to handle the bees. Yeah. And they typically don't get stung. Be a bee when you're hanging out with the bees, and you won't get stung. Right. I just made that up. Well, <laughs> there are, it could be a haiku almost. There's one exception. Uh, you've probably heard of African bees. They're oh, yes, the Africanized bees. Killer bees. Yep. And they are extremely aggressive. They were brought here to Brazil in the 1950s to mate with uh, Italian, that the calmer Italian bees, mm-hmm. because African bees produce more honey, and they thought if you could mate the two, you'd get calm bees that produce a lot of honey, but that's not what happened. Yeah. Uh, the African bees, first of all, they got away from the quarantined area, and now they're, and they made their way up into Florida and southern, the southern United States, yeah. and they are extremely aggressive, and if you get anywhere near them, and you know, look at them the wrong way; they will come after you for a quarter of a mile. There've been, there have been people wow. killed by swarms of African honeybees, but it's very rare, yeah. and I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> well, but it's something to be take note of. It is. Yeah, yeah, something to take note of. So, 
how can we go about protecting the honeybees? What can we do? Well, one thing you can do, one as if you're kids, somebody can talk about kids since that's who the book is, is uh, aimed at. Uh-huh. So kids, this is a, a kind of a small impact, but it's something they can get started with, is they can um, start a school project or, a gar- a, a, or their own project that involves planting a garden with, with honeybee-friendly um, plants, mm. trees. Yeah. So for instance, sunflowers, goldenrod, and dahlias are, are honeybee-friendly flowers. You can plant um, herbs like thyme, sage, or mint. I'm not sure you could plant. You, you kids might be in a position to plant trees, but but maple, apple, and cherry trees are friendly. And oh, then yeah. the weeds, dandelions, and clover are very friendly. They provide a lot of good nutrition for the honeybees. Mm-hmm. You can be an entrepreneur. I mean, there's a rise of entrepreneurship among kids, and they're getting younger and younger. There's been a lot of stories about. Well, I, I have I. I clipped a story about an 11-year-old girl from Texas who who sold a product, her own homemade product, called Me and the Bees Lemonade. It's a recipe for lemonade she has that she added in local Texas honey. Oh, nice. And she sold it to Whole Foods. Oh, wow. So she got a distribution, she got a distribution agreement with Whole Foods, and she got an investment from um, the ABC series Shark Tank. Uh-huh. You know, you can do a lot, a lot of entrepreneurial things. There's a boy from outside of Boston who has spent the last three years installing and tending beehives. Um, he's launched 13 hives, and his goal, he says, is just to save as many bees as he can and wow. to get publicity and help others do the same thing. Yeah. There's a museum in San Jose, California called the Children's Discovery Museum that's creating almost 4,000 square feet of bee habitat where kids and their families can observe the lives of honeybees, et cetera. But I think, I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't lead directly to saving honeybees, but I think for kids to, to watch and learn about hives, yeah. um, it teaches them a lot about things like teamwork and efficiency. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I say, there's no, no uh, prima donnas here. Like, you know, every bee has a job to do, and even right. the queen, despite her name, she has to... She's a miserable life. I mean, she has to lay approximately almost 2,000 eggs every day. She never gets to leave the hive. And when she can no longer produce those eggs, she's kicked out. She's surrounded by her, quote, daughters, the uh-huh. worker bees, and she's suffocated to death wow. and then kicked out of the hive. So, you know, this is, <laughs> queen is, a, you know, when you say someone's a queen bee, you're actually not, it's not a really positive term. <laughs> right. Um so, uh, and then the bees themselves, you know, they're, they, 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 take, they take care of the babies, they mm-hmm. clean the hive, they fan the queen. So, you know, I think you, know, you might say that maybe there's too much efficiency in the beehives because there's not a whole lot of sentimental uh, right. feeling going on. But just to see how, how a social structure can operate in such a productive uh, and orderly way, I think the only other two uh, insect types of insects that have this this kind of social system are um, ants and termites. I think if you looked at them, they right. also have these... these Hive communal, structure. Uh, right, structures. And then, you know, just kids will, you know, will, will, will learn a lesson, which is that yeah. they can have an impact on their environment oh, at yeah. an early age. They don't have to wait, you know, till they're adults. And then if you're really interested in helping out, of course, you can always um, work with different... Um, lobbying groups um, right. who are 
try to take do a better job of taking care of the bees. Yeah. Well, I think, so, uh, you know, as I shared earlier, I, uh, I started gardening when I was 14 mm-hmm. um, in the mid-70s. And, you know, I, from that, I've taken away how important it is to, you know, to really get our young, young ones to understand food, where food comes from. So, yeah, right. You know, I, I do think that you're planting seeds for a, uh, an impactful, bright future with the, you know, mm-hmm. with the young people. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important. Okay. So is there a role that the, our government can play in this process of protecting the bees? We have... Uh, well, as I say, the, the EPA is, is onto this, although probably not as fast as the, um, <laughs> as the, the most critical uh, bee people yeah. um, are. Now, the White House last year established a task force uh, to study bees and to look into colony collapse disorder. You know, that's there's always good and bad things about government task forces. Yeah. But anyway, it's supposed to be presenting a, a report pretty soon. Germany and France, I mentioned two European countries, they've already banned some pesticides implicated um, oh, good. in the death of bees. Yeah. And last year, a U.S. appeals court, um, there was a ruling that said the Environmental Protection Agency uh, mistakenly allowed an insecticide onto the market and that it hadn't been proven to be um, not harmful. Oh, so wow. That, that's been taken off the market for a while. And I think they've actually ruled against another ruling against another one of the companies. Yeah. The other problem is uh, Brexit, which, is, as we all know, refers to Britain's decision to leave the European Union. Right. So in that case, Brit- Britain has uh, banned some pesticides, which the beekeepers have favored, that this an action the beekeepers favored, but now if they leave the European Union, does that mean they have to negotiate these regulations with 28 different countries instead of having this one umbrella organization, which yeah. they have with the EU? So there's all kinds of ramifications. And then, yeah. of course, there's the EpiPen. EpiPen, um, I don't know if scandals may be too strong a word. but no, you know, I'd call it that. Companies Okay, yeah, their 400% markup of its current version, Yeah. Uh, you know, of a, of a product that is crucial to people's lives. It's not like you're buying an extra pair of jeans. Right. You know, people really need these EpiPens. So bees are just in the news a lot. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. which is good. I'm actually going to Cuba uh, at the end of this wow, month. Wow, really? Visit. Yeah, and I'm going to visit a bee colony that's just outside Trinidad, so... Um, you know, bees, they're, they're in every country, yeah. except they're all over the world. I mean, and that means there's a huge honey industry all mm-hmm. over the world. China produces a huge amount of honey. Vietnam produces a huge amount of honey. Yeah. There's an interesting story about a honey called um, Manuka honey, which yes. is produced. Have you heard about that? I have. It's, pro- it's produced in New Zealand, and it's supposed to actually have um, medicinal value. It, it it's used in wound care, for example, uh-huh. and pressure sore care, uh, which means that it's very popular and very expensive. And the Manuka uh, honey producers in New Zealand are trying to trademark this product because it's so valuable. Wow. Uh, now, the Manuka honey producers in Australia are not very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're trying, to, they're trying to prevent that. Um, so honey is even... You know, made it into the international headlines yeah. as being a you know a controversial, litigious uh, product. Right, right. Wow, wow. So, what are you specifically doing to educate the public about honeybees? Well, I am 
publishing blogs on a, on things like um, how we can teach our kids the importance of bee culture. Mm. Um, I've published one on, on tips to take care of bees and not annoy your neighbors. Oh, yeah, that would be a um, good one. <laughs> yeah. I've just basically given advice uh, for people who are thinking about being beekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, of course, the book, which uh, which I hope, you know, alerts people to this. Yeah. The problem, I mean, one, you know, one newspaper columnist um, said that bees are the canary in the coal mine. I mean, they're oh, the ones yes. who are alerting us to the fact that we are really in danger of destroying a part of our environment that mm-hmm. once it's gone, it's going to be very hard to get back. Yeah. So I think I'm also doing uh, programs. I'm going to do actually my first program in a school uh, next week in a class where I have a PowerPoint presentation on bees and colony collapse disorder oh, nice. and hope to get the kids interested in yeah. this. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. I'm not an entomologist. I don't have any, you know, I was a history major, as you pointed out. I have no science background, but I really care about bees. Yeah. So, you know, my goal is just to get information out there. So, it makes a difference. so when we started talking and, and you made some comment about you're not a beekeeper um, mm-hmm. uh, and you're not a gardener, but you're a researcher. Right. You know, you're a researcher and you've done all of this great work around... Yeah collecting data that we all need to know about right. bees right <laughs> you know and so I, I you know I just as, as we were kind of chatting over the past 30 minutes or so it's like wow I need to acknowledge her for that you have done a great job of oh, thank you of putting together a story that is of you know in my opinion of great importance moving forward in our culture so thank you for that oh you're welcome yeah no, I mean I was surprised. I'm surprised myself at how, at how. So I mean it, it's probably an exaggeration to say that I love honeybees, but uh-huh. when I saw those bees coming out of that that shoebox and marching single file into their new home, oh, yes. ready to go to work, I just thought these are amazing creatures, and yeah. and that's when I really started to do a lot of research. And I am a researcher, and I like collecting facts, yeah. and I like to write, so. A bonus. Yeah. <laughs> so it all kind of came together, but um, you started to say yeah. you thought about a second book. Well, I thought I was starting to say I thought about a second book, but I mean, honestly, in terms of a, of a uh, a species or a specific um, topic like honeybees, you know, nothing that I have found so far mm-hmm. uh, interests me enough in, in, in this kind of focused way. I mean, I have other major interests. Yeah. But I, I, you know, nothing has jumped out at me and, you know, hooked me like these bees. Yeah. Yeah. So bees coming out of the box one by one in a single file line, that's something to learn from observing bees. Is there anything else to learn? Uh, well, I, I've observed the waggle dance they do, uh, which is this eight-step, you've probably heard of this, this eight-step dance that honeybees will perform for the bees in the hive. Uh-huh. So once a honeybee goes out and gets the nectar, she comes back to the hive and she does this waggle dance and that it it by doing that dance she pinpoints where the uh, what direction the flowers are and how far. Interesting. And, you know, scientists are still not totally <laughs> sure how how this is done. Right. But somehow they do it and 
it's fascinating. And then they also have this this maneuver called clustering at night or uh-huh. in the cold weather where they, they all gather around the queen bee to keep her warm, and they take turns clustering around, and then they move out, and the next ring of bees oh, goes in and clusters I've and generates warmth, and then they move out. So they're just these very, very efficient systems. They don't waste anything. You know, they don't waste any movement. Right. Um, it's just, you know, it's genetic. It's in their genes how to act like this. And, yeah. you know, it's too bad we can't harness some of that dedication. <laughs> uh, but it's really great to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for all of that. That's just amazing. Oh, good. You're welcome. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think my biggest success was making the decision to leave my job as a business journalist, uh-huh. uh, which I had done for most of my life, um, and write a fiction novel because I my whole training had been in fact-checking everything, mm-hmm. fact-checking people's names, titles, quotes, facts about the company you're writing about or the industry or the latest development in that industry. And all of a sudden I had this this surge of, of, of ecstasy when I could realize I could make a lot of stuff up. You know, I could make up the kids' quotes. I could right. make up their names. I could make up the plot. And I think it did take a leap of faith on my part to to make that, you know, to think I could make that transition because I had never, I'd written a business, co-authored a business book on leadership, but I had never tried anything like this. Mm. And I had no publisher. I had, you know, I had no advance. I had no promise of anything. Yeah. And I just kept at it until I finally decided to send something off to a publisher. <clears throat> and luckily the, the first one I sent it to took it. Oh, bonus. Uh, it this tumble home learning. Yeah. Um, in oh, Boston that's great. Because I knew they specialized in environmental fiction, and yeah. I thought, wow, that's what my book is. Right. So that was right. that was great, and they've been really good to work with. So. So um, one of one of the yeah. things that I really um, target and touch on in my podcast is talking with people that were doing something that wasn't them following their heart, and then they transition to following their heart and doing what they love in the world. So what happened that that moment occurred where you decided to, you know, go away from what you'd been doing to writing this book? Was there a spark? Was there something that happened? Well, I think it was probably uh, one contributor was that essay I mentioned to you in the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Uh, and that the the journal has a, a system where they um, they forward to you any uh, comments on your story on oh, your wow. article, and I got lots and lots of comments on the article. But they were they were they broke down into two types of comments. One was saying how you know honeybees are the greatest, and thanks so much for all this, and you know don't you love them? And and the other was saying this is a beautifully written essay. So we hope you keep writing, or I hope oh. you keep writing. And so I thought, whoa, that's nice. Uh, so I had, I had some support. You know, I had yeah. um, people who were liking the topic and also liking my writing. I mean, I knew I could write because I've been a writer for yeah. so long, but I never, I never knew if I could write fiction. And and in fact, I I was working with a a woman for a while uh, on the first part of the book. And she was very critical, and I finally just said, you know, I'm done with her. 
I just, if I really believe in this project, I have to go ahead with it. Yeah. Um, so I put it aside for a month because it was a little discouraging. And then I just picked it up and I said, I'm going to do this. And I, I just thought it was good. I mean, I'm a pretty critical editor of myself as well as others. And I just thought, I think this can work. Uh, and I'm going to keep going. So I did. Nice. Um, you followed your heart. Yeah. I did. Good for I you. did. I loved writing it. I loved getting up in the morning yeah. and writing. Well, and you've, and you've gone to continuing to teach about this as well. So right. yay for yeah. you. Thank you. What, so what drives you? I think I get a lot of uh, satisfaction, almost kind of sensual satisfaction, of seeing my words in print. Oh, yes. So whenever I had a story published in whatever newspaper or magazine I was working for, I got a kick out of seeing my name, right. seeing the article. I don't have a particularly long attention span, so I think a lot of reporters uh, actually are like me, and they go from one topic to another. They sort of fill up the glass with a lot of facts, and they pour out the glass into the article they're writing, and then they forget part of it and right. move on. So, so I got kind of used at an early age to seeing my name in print or an article that I'd worked on as an editor. Uh-huh. So I think it's that visual satisfaction of seeing yeah. something that I've actually produced, you know, on paper, um, as opposed to in, in some intellectual, you know, ethosphere somewhere. Mm-hmm. Cool. So is there a book that has been influential for you in this process? I think I could say that there are some uh, good middle-grade books I read. Uh, I can give you a few titles. There's one called... Um, Hoot by Carl Hyacin, who's actually a writer of a lot of, he's a quite famous Florida, right, lives in Florida, Florida, and is a uh, columnist, and writes a lot of adult books, fiction books, but he also wrote a middle grade kids book called Hoot, and it was just hysterical, and it was very well done, and it, in fact, is an environmental fiction book. So I read that, and I thought, wow, this is terrific, I'd love to be able to write a book like that. Yeah. And then I read a book, a very unusual book called The Westing Game. That was, I could never write a book like that, but it showed me that the, sort of the, there are no limits to one's imagination when you yeah. come up with plot and characters. And then the book that I read to my two sons that I, I, it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but I still go up to one of my son's rooms. He's now 26. Uh-huh. And I, I read the ending of the book over because it's so amazing. The book is called Bud Not Buddy. Uh, and it's about an um, African-American orphan in the Depression uh, whose mother dies, and he sets off on his own. He's about 10 years old to find his father. Wow. Uh, and it's just so beautifully written and such a great plot. Uh-huh. Uh, so I actually had an email from a, a girl who had read Bees on the Roof and said she was going to do a school project project on it, and could I recommend books, middle-grade books? So, of course, I, of course I recommended the obvious, you know, Charlotte's Web, yeah, uh, books like that. But then I mentioned these three, and she has just started reading Bud Not Buddy. She sent me an email and said, "I loved it. Thank you." Wow. So Fantastic. those are probably all yeah. influential. Yeah. I mean, my book's very straightforward. It's got a straightforward plot. You know, yeah. um, it's nothing like Charlotte's Web or The Westing Game, but um, it makes but an impact. Know, you just, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, Robbie, what final piece of advice? you have for our listeners well i mean there's this very trite 
you know, piece of advice people say, like, follow your heart and take risks. I'm not a risk taker, so I can't say that, you know, with a lot of a lot of oomph behind it. Uh-huh. I mean, I started this book, actually, when I was still working full-time, just very briefly. I mean, very, um, uh, happy, you know, every now and again, um, thinking about it, doing the research. So I... I had already, you know, I had a full-time job. I was confident that I could have stayed in that job. So when I finally left to do the book full-time, I, I kind of had a good handle on where I was going with it. And yeah. I had the support of my family. That's a big, big, oh, big, big factor. Oh, big time, big time. So, you know, I just, I think, but I do think it's something you have to say to yourself, what makes, what makes you forget the time, what time it is, mm, or yeah. whether it's meal time. Or, I mean, I can sit and write, and I and I don't look up, yeah, because I I like doing it. And is there something, you know, my brother, the the backyard beekeeper, is an architect, and he can spend hours, you know, drawings on right. drawings, yeah. Um, and I just think you have to find that passion, mm-hmm. um, that that, you know, kind of keeps keeps everything at bay, keeps all the bad stuff in the world, yeah. that's going on, keeps it at bay for a while so you can get involved and get you know and feel good right good about yourself and your and think that you have a talent and that you're working on it and that you know something good will come from it yeah Heidi and I here at the urban farm call it farm time oh really yeah we go out we go out in the backyard and you know three hours later look up and it's like oh (laughs) exactly yeah yeah I mean I think gardeners are like that yeah exactly yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, it's been wonderful. I love your questions. Thank you. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you, find the book, so on and so on? Well, the book is on Amazon um, under Bees on the Roof. It's okay. also available from the publisher, which is Tumble Home Learning, uh, THL. Mm-hmm. And I do have a website that. Uh, beesontheroof.com oh, perfect. so any of those ways um, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm reachable fantastic you can also okay. find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash bees on the roof well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast thanks Greg bye bye my favorite plant to grow in my yard is the fruit tree because you plant it once and you get fruit for decades. If you have ever been curious on the best ways to be successful in growing fruit trees, today is your lucky day. Why? Because my team and I have compiled our best interviews and videos in one place to assist you in growing your own toe-tingling peaches and awesome apples right out your front or back door. Plus, as an added bonus, we've included an in-depth guide to successfully growing fruit trees in your yard. To get access to this information, it's free by the way, just go to urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. That's urbanorchard.org or text FRUIT to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.